Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's The Wonky Show. We're talking about the war in Ukraine, financial sustainability, and a new code of practice on admissions. It's all coming up. I need to be careful because I don't want to be the old man who um, had his say three years ago and is now sort of standing is now standing in the background carping about things that are there and th- things that aren't there. But it would be good if the public finances permitted um, ma- maintenance grants at some point to come back in. I think it's a it's a bit a step has been made. Um, a, a, a gesture has been made, more than a gesture. A seventy five million fund speaking speaking from memory. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education, news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Editor-in-Chief Mark Leach and joining me are three brilliant guests as usual to help unpack the week's goings on in HE. In his house in Nottingham, it's Registrar of the University of Nottingham, Paul Greatrix and friend of the show. Paul, your highlight of the week please. I, it's uh, obviously the week ha- hasn't finished yet, but um, my highlight has been uh, pressing the button on the OFS consultation draft submission uh, earlier this week. That was fun. Um, and in Dunstable, it's Laura Tamara, co-president of the Students' Union at the University of Bedfordshire. Laura, your highlight of the week, please. My highlight of the week is campaigning to keep my job as a female co-president at Beds SU. So I've been in the face of many students asking for their support. Uh, voting closes today at four o'clock. And so it's a very tense time for me at the moment. Well, you've got the wonky vote, so uh, uh, good luck. Um, and uh, from Digifest in Birmingham, it's Wonky's associate editor, David Kernahan, or DK to you and me. DK, your highlight of the week. Uh, people that know me well would know I'm a huge fan of a journalist named Audrey Waters, and it was a delight for me to hear her speak on the topic of hope in these dark times at uh, Digifest. We start the week with the disaster that is the war in Ukraine and the fallout uh, on the higher education community around the world. Well, it's a, an incredibly uh, disturbing and worrying situation in Ukraine for for all of us. It's it's headlines on the news. It's uh, a deeply unsettling and anxious period uh, for everyone, not least uh, those Ukrainian residents fearing uh, for for their lives in the teeth of a uh, a Russian invasion. It's incredibly difficult for all of us to uh, to process uh, what's going on, and everyone in the UK, I think, wants to to do the right thing. And everyone in higher education is looking uh, for ways in which we can help and offer support and uh, ensure that we are doing all that we can to support uh, academics and students in the Ukraine, uh, but also anyone fleeing uh, that country um, and uh, looking for a safe haven uh, in the rest of Europe. So it, it is just an incredibly difficult situation and universities and staff in universities and students in universities are all grappling with ways in which we can try and provide the right level of support for um, our, our, our colleagues and friends in, in Ukraine. And it's incredibly difficult because we we all want to do something. We all want to, to help in whatever way we can. And yet, um, 
I mean, part of the challenge, I think, for, for us is that we can, and indeed we've seen this, and it's right and proper that universities and our representative bodies, Universities UK and, uh, and other sector agencies and learned bodies, etc., make very, very strong and very clear declarations of intent around this, uh, condemning the invasion, condemning the behaviour uh, uh, of Russia on this, and and looking at all the links we have and trying to find ways to to demonstrate our disapproval through uh, whatever means we can. However, these are you know gestures at heart, and what we all want to do, I think, is to do things that actually matter and will make a difference. And that's where I think we're all struggling because you know government is talking grand words and delivering what seems like you know uh, precious little uh, on the ground particularly in terms of refugees and access to our country in a way that I think the the British population wants but universities want to do more students want to do more staff want to do more so we're we're all I think grappling with how to do better and there are things we can do there is an agency called um, um, uh, the the uh, Campaign for At-Risk Academics, Council for At-Risk Academics, which provides uh, a structured support and exit package for, for uh, academics who are escaping crises like these. But the scale of this is bigger than anything I think they've ever coped with. So Universities UK, I know, is trying to convene support. Universities are all trying to do their own thing. We want to welcome staff. We want to support them. We want to welcome students. We want to support them. Our visa regime doesn't make it helpful. But I think we all want to do the very best we can. But it's incredibly difficult. Um, and I think, you know, we, we're all looking for ideas and ways to, ways to help, but it just remains an incredibly challenging situation and heartbreaking, actually. And I've never seen anything like it in my career, and uh, I hope I never do again, but we all want to do the right thing, I think. The, um, the, the, the Council for At-Risk Academics is a, is a brilliant program. I'll put a link in the, in the show notes. Um, it makes, makes me think that, you know, a kind of Council for At-Risk Students, uh, charity would probably be welcome. But Caroline Noakes, um, from the, the Women Equality Select Committee proposed something similar saying, um, you know, maybe we could have some kind of national program for students to come and take up places at UK universities. I mean, enormously difficult to do something like that, but I mean... It would require changes to the visa regime, which would require the Home Office to change its position, right? Uh, at the moment, the way in which universities are required to uh, process Tier 4 visas for students would mean that it would be incredibly difficult simply to admit someone, uh, a student studying in the Ukraine at the moment, who's no longer able to study because their university's been bombed, uh, to do that uh, simply and clearly. It would require the Home Office to change the visa regime. I think they should. I think we would find ways to welcome them and support those students quickly and rapidly. And every university in the country would want to do that. Laura, I'm, I'm interested to know. I mean, you're you're currently campaigning in a in a in a, in a cross campus election. Um, I'm I'm interested to know what students are saying about this issue and what they're asking of the students' union and what what you're asking of the university. Well, we were quite quickly inundated with requests to comment um, on the situation, um, which we which we did. Um, but we always try to keep in step with our university and, and sort of not, not be too far away from what the university is saying. The vice chancellor was very prompt to also condemn uh, what was happening um, and to offer support to students who who feel that they needed it in in the way of chaplaincy counseling um and and just showing a togetherness in the student community 
Also yesterday, uh, we received communication that they're, they're being inundated with donations, um, so much so that they can't actually uh, receive everything anymore and, and get it off the ground. So we're now being directed to give financial um, support um, and have been given reputable charities to donate to, to show support that way. I, I think that's a really important point about the support that we're looking to provide to, to, to Ukrainian as well as Russian students and staff, because it's an incredibly difficult and anxious uh, time time for them as well. And there are many uh, Russians and Ukrainians in the UK, and it is difficult for for them. Mm. I mean, DK, one of the other issues this kind of exposes one of the fault lines is this question about um, sanctions and 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 kind of boycotts of uh, of universities in Russia. I mean, someone someone's saying this week, you know, universities don't boycott other universities. You know, that's not that's generally not how things have done. But there is a kind of isolation of Russia that's emerging that kind of crosses all kind of economic, social, educational boundaries and that's that's a that's new and that's a problem isn't it i i mean yeah there's been um, a number of things that have concerned me on this i mean the real shock for me was the um statement by the russian um union of rectors uh that's approximately the equivalent of um a Russian version of Universities UK. It's a grouping of um, institutional leaders, vice chancellors, and they made a statement strongly in support of the war, strongly in support of Vladimir Putin's actions. And that, I mean, that just felt to me as that is not a thing that should be happening in academia, not a thing that should be happening in in um, higher education. Uh, the um, European um, universities groups have been quick to distance themselves from those particular universities. Um, and there's also a general expectation that in considering existing and new collaborations with um universities and agencies in uh Russia the um message in european terms and also echoed by universities uk is that uh these should be considered very very carefully that there should be no um collaborations or we're working together with russian state actors and we should be really careful about the universities that we are working with in russia um it is a difficult uh, uh balance obviously the temptation is to try and do everything we possibly can to help the people of ukraine the academics and students in ukraine and um as part of a sector which is um, global by definition, is built on connection between uh, staff and students in different uh, countries. This is a very, very difficult line uh, to walk, I think. Mm. I mean, I I read that um, statement by the the, the Russian Union directors. It's it's kind of hard to read because... It, it, well, it reads to me like, so, you know, someone writing something with essentially a kind of gun to their head. You know, we rode a rally around the president, um, and the, you know, the events taking place excite every citizen of Russia and, and kind of, you know, making it sound like the, the idea behind the, the university system there is to support, it was instill patriotism kind of almost beyond, you know, deliver higher education. Um, I mean, that, that, that sounds to me like, um, you know, people who, who have to say that. For fear of perhaps their lives, for fear of their freedom, um, and and everything else. So it's, but I mean, it's 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 very hard to know, isn't it? And where you know where do we draw that line? 
my, my, I mean, may I come in? I mean, it's, I think it's, you know, it is genuinely frightening. And um, it, it, it does highlight the fact that, you know, these are uh, effectively state-directed organisations. And I think that's where the break has to happen. But you know that there are thousands, many thousands of, of uh, progressive academics within Russia who will equally be appalled by this. And it's important that we don't simply cut off all links with those progressive forces in Russia, um, because there'll be lots of really strong individual relationships. Presumably lots of active research collaborations going on, presumably things that are live that can't just be stopped between all kinds of different universities you would have thought. Yeah, we have to be careful, though, because some of them may be deemed to be actually security sensitive and ones that you, you, you know, you would have to stop. But those individual personal relationships, which is so important to successful research, are ones that I think it would be deeply, deeply sad and indeed wrong uh, to prevent uh, from occurring in future, because actually that's where the change will happen uh, after all this has, has ultimately been resolved. And we, we look to move forward with a hopefully uh, a move in the long run to a different kind of Russia. Right. Let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hi there. I've written a blog for 1KG talking about the academic other in university administrations. My name is Muriel. I work for the Open University as a senior management professional as well as a research affiliate in the music department. I suggest in my blog that academically employed staff and research management professionals in fact have more in common than sometimes they would like to think. Both groups care deeply about the quality of research and teaching that happens at our institutions and indeed also about the knowledge sharing that goes on through them and by them. However, Through our internal squabbles, and because we don't necessarily see each other as supporting the same functions, we are doing ourselves a disservice. I suggest in my blog, therefore, that perhaps if we took the time to acknowledge our similarities rather than focus on the differences, we could support the great initiatives that go on at institutions even better still, and dare I say it, perhaps even review a few contracts along the way. Now, earlier in the week, we held our New Rules event where we unpacked the post-orga political and funding settlement for universities and our first big guest was Philip Orga himself. I started by asking him what he thought of the government's response to his review. general perception I have is that the reaction to the government's proposals is pretty much consistent with the direction of um, UK tertiary education policy for about 50 years, which was an excessive concentration on the HE elements and um, a tendency to completely wash over what I think is the the truly transformative bit, which is the lifelong learning entitlement, how that can um, reboot further education and reboot um, the life opportunities for um, still the vast majority of the population who don't have a degree and the 50% or so of young people even now who, who don't go to university. So... There has been quite a lot done by the government since the uh, since the, uh, our, our first report. Um, the skills for jobs white paper, I thought, was was important. The skills bill going through Parliament at the moment is really really significant. I particularly like the um, the the connection between uh, the sector employers and the skip through the skills improvement plans this this is this is really important stuff but actually and it's quite difficult to make the connection but actually if you think through the lifelong learning entitlement the that that that's actually how you do it that's how you get fe rebooted there's certainly more to be done in terms of 
um, remuneration for staff, training for staff, capex, fees, all the rest of it. But the lifelong learning entitlement, the extension of maintenance to uh, part-time, the extension of maintenance to what, what are currently called non-designated um, level four, level fives. This is actually, it's, 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 it's there. It's, 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 it's actually it's a lot already in the pipeline. Um, why, doesn't it, why doesn't it get more attention? Well, partly because it's a complicated story to tell. Um, partly because um, I suppose the people that write the comment tend to be graduates themselves and to have children who, are, who they want to be graduates. Um, partly because the, the HE sector is incredibly important to this country. Um, one thing the panel was quite clear to make clear was our support for the sector right up front. We understand the terrific um, cultural, social and economic work that the HE sector does. So, that, so there's that. It's also that, um, I mean, th there, is, there, is, there is no, um, as far as I know, Wonk FE, is there? There is no, um, th there are no think tanks dedicated to further education. And in fact, if there's anyone out there listening to this who'd be interested in talking to me about setting up um, a further education policy institute, for example, my website is philiborga.com. You can leave me a message there and it's something I want to have a look at if, over the coming weeks and months. So it's... I, I agree. It's much needed. We, we talk about that. Uh, we talk about that quite that point quite a lot, actually. Um, uh, no, fascinating. Fascinating. Anyone, and uh, genuinely, please uh, uh, loop us in as well. We're fascinated to be part of that part of that conversation. Um, I want. Uh, I want to talk about one of the things that, that, that wasn't it, just because it was so conspicuous. The the whole of chapter seven about about student maintenance and. You know, understandably, a lot of the commentary and debate has been has been about that point since the since the launch because it, it does feel like a, a huge a huge missing piece of the puzzle. I need to be careful because I don't want to be the old man who um, had his say three years ago and is now sort of standing is now standing in the background carping about things that are there and th things that aren't there. But it would be good if the public finances permitted um, maintenance grants at some point to come back in. I think it's a it's a, bit, a step has been made. Um, a, a gesture has been made, more than a gesture. A seventy-five million fund, speaking speaking from memory. Um, this is something I hope we can come we can come back to to look at in future. When we when, when sorry Mark when yeah. we, when, we, when we when we constructed the the recommendations as as Debbie said there are there are quite a lot too many to list. I think there are fifty odd. Um, we were we we said to government and probably we said in print. This is an integrated package. Please don't unpick part. Don't, don't just take parts of it. It's the whole. It's the whole thing. I suppose realistically, we never expected that to happen. But um, it, it, it's it's it, it all fits in. It's a it's a, like a jigsaw puzzle. Now, the National Audit Office has been digging into the financial sustainability of universities. DK, talk us through it. So this is a National Audit Office value for money report. What they do is they look at all kinds of uh, uh, public spending and regulation on behalf of the public purse and they see how well it's working and they make recommendations as to how it could be a, a, improved. They happen to turn to the financial stability of higher education institutions in 2020-21 which was kind of a landmark year for thinking about financial sustainability of universities. We learn from the report that there are 
10 providers that are currently facing enhanced monitoring from the office of students on the grounds of financial instability. We learned that a small number of providers did approach the um, DFE regime for um, restructuring uh, during the pandemic and that three actually entered that um, regime. And we learned that there were and remain concerns about the liquidity of um, universities and other higher education providers. Uh, there was 33 out of 247 during 2020-21 that said they did not have enough liquidity to cover 30 days of expenses, which is like the absolute uh, baseline of uh, financial stability. It just basically means if you don't get any more money, you can still pay wages and uh, other costs that uh, um, month. But the purpose of this report is not just to think about the um actual universities themselves, also the regulation. Uh, the report notes that the OFS is a newish regulator. It's making decent use of the financial uh, data, um, but it's not particularly good at communicating with the sector and bringing the sector along with it. And that, to me, in the face of the numerous ongoing consultations that are being run by the OFS and some of the slightly surprising messages in the orga response and related things, makes me think that we are turning towards a period of government scrutiny of the Office for Students. We talked on the site last week about the possibility of the possibility of post-legislative scrutiny of the Higher Education and Research Act. We also are, are reminded from this report that we are pending a, um, a tailored report uh, that's conducted by the DfE on the success or otherwise of the Office for Students. Uh, coming at a time when the Office for Students is searching for a new chief executive, it is a, a very interesting moment in regulation in England. So there's, there's a lot here. I mean, Paul, does, does the OFS, can the OFS do anything different, differently to, to the, what Hefke did when it looked at financial sustainability of, um, of universities? So we've got 10 providers under enhanced monitoring, which is kind of a technical phrase. But I mean, you know, Hefke could always tell whether a university was in financial trouble, right? Yeah. And I, I think the, the starting point for Hefke and the starting point for the OFS are very different. Um, in that, you know, Hefke saw itself as having a role to, uh, to try and identify these problems as early as it could and then to ensure that the, the right steps were taken very quietly, but very appropriately, um, uh, to, to make the necessary changes to support people, institutions through, through those difficulties, always trying to keep it, uh, as low key as possible to avoid, you know, spooking, spooking everyone quite, quite reasonably. The OFS you know, and I'm not criticising the OFS for this, but um, you know, personally, I think that the premise isn't the right one. Its brief is an entirely different one. Its brief is to be a regulator and to uh, treat, you know, without fear or favour, the institutions within its brief in the interests of uh, of students. Right now, you can debate whether or not it's acted in the interest of students, but it does not see itself at all as Hefke did as having a responsibility for for maintaining the sector. Right, so there is a sense in which. If one or two universities completely collapse financially, that's unfortunate from an OFS perspective. But, you know, 
arrangements will be in place to deal with that. Hefke would have regarded that as you know something of an existential crisis for higher education in the UK and would have done everything in its power, drawing on other resources within the sector to ensure that that didn't happen. And it didn't happen on Hefke's watch. Um, We've always had predictions of universities going to the wall. It's never happened. And I think that in its limited lifespan, you know, OFS has, has certainly sought to ensure that that doesn't happen. But it's, it's, I have to say, I think it's a bit more, um, dispassionate, um, uh, about the success or otherwise of higher education in the UK than, than Hefke was. And I, I, so I, I think that if I were in one of those, uh, 10 universities, I'm not, uh, but if I were, uh, I, I would be even more anxious now than I would have been in the past, but there is much more of this on the way. This is the direction of travel. And I think, you know, potentially the OFS does need to look at this more in the round than on a case by case basis. Um, no, I'm, I'm interested in, in kind of, you know, the, the extent to which you feel that um, you understand the kind of financial situation of, of your university. And, and you know, do, do you feel like that, you know, do you feel well briefed and informed? And when, I assume, you, you know, you go to go along to governing body meetings, um, you know, do, you know, is there is there open discussion about these sorts of things? Because previously, some of these things have been um, not exactly hushed up, but it's been less than transparent in some cases. And I think that's led to some financial problems in some universities. Agreed. Uh, I, I'm very much uh, at the table in the room when these discussions are being had. I have access as um, as a governor um, to and privy to all of the financial information. Um, I don't doubt that there are conversations that I am not privy to. However, for the purpose of transparency, I believe that my university is compliant um, and they are sharing with me uh, the position financially of, of the institution. Uh, so the other arm of this report, of course, is directly concerned with students and the student experience. Uh, the um, uh, finding number 18 is the OFS lacks a strong measure with which to judge the value for money that students get from their courses. And we saw the impact of that in the uh, concerns around the quality of provision during the uh, lockdown phases of the pandemic and the idea that students could complain if they weren't getting adequate uh, uh, teaching and resources, but they were never told what adequate actually was or what that should mean. Now, um, the Office for Students, I think, has rightly shied away from a single metric or a compound metric even on the quality of teaching and learning as it pertains to the value for money for a degree. Uh, HEPI and the um, Advanced HE, uh, the, obviously they have their survey that does look at value for money and they saw that um, dip in the survey uh, during and relating to the lockdown phases of the uh, of the pandemic. The official regulatory position is that it means different things to different people and it will change for those people over time. But uh, the consequences of choosing to regulate in the way that the OFS has been uh, designed and had conducted itself during its life is that we lose an aspect of students having an understanding of what they should actually be able to expect from their 
uh, uh, provider what they can reasonably ask for and of the regulator having a more direct line into what is actually happening in the Zoom classroom or on the VLE. Uh, so that again will be something else that the office of students will be looking at very, very carefully. I mean, and, and the other thing there, Paul, is, that, I mean, you know, we've been, we, we've been talking on the show for years and people are constantly ask us, you know, are there universities that are about to, uh, about to fall over in, in some shape or form? And that hasn't yet happened. Um, and although some of that, some, there's obviously some liquidity problems in, in a bunch of providers. I guess I guess this kind of confirms that we're not staring down the barrel of a you know widespread widespread institutional failure. Not not yet, not yet. But if you look at what's coming down the track, right now, I, I I'm a bit of a Cassandra on this, I must admit. But um, you look at what's coming in terms of the inflationary pressures um, hitting uh, universities, and I know you know we've still got ongoing disputes um, in parts of the sector around uh, pensions and around pay. You know, the, the, the additional costs for institutions there are, are, are still significant. And the other costs around, uh, energy prices, around, uh, other things that we're all hearing about in terms of cost of living will have a profound effect on, on the cost base of universities as well. So will affect an awful lot more institutions. So I think we're, we're in for some real financial challenge ahead. The Treasury and indeed other parts of government still have this perception that somehow universities are awash with cash. It really isn't the case. Um, there are parts of the sector who have historically very strong reserves thanks to their 800 years of, of, of land ownership and privilege. But there are other parts of the sector who are very, very far from that. Um, but I do think, going back to the regulatory argument, right, um, you know, I am yet to see any piece of the regulatory architecture which has actually demonstrably enhanced the student experience in a classroom, right? Um, and the more and more regulation we layer on top of this, right, the further and further we're going to get from actually improving that experience as well, and the more costly and interventionist and unhelpful and distracting that regulatory architecture is going to be. Um, I have a personal beef about this as you know but um nevertheless I, I i have yet i think i would argue to be to be proved wrong if i may an area that i would i would say is is a big liability for us is is halls of residence we have so many empty rooms um at, at our Luton campus and we're desperate for students to come and you know have the full student experience live in Luton um, and study in Luton but many um, of the international students we have choose to to live outside of the town which is a real disappointment and that's something that I know our vice, vice chancellor is really working on to get that appeal um, to the student who wants to spend time on campus and actually live on campus and and have that true authentic student experience um so yes it's something that is is very uh stressful for us to um to look at the liability and the cost of keeping those halls of residence open and i just wanted to add at the end that the universities that the ofs seems to be seeing as in financial risk are not just the universities you might expect there's a couple of graphs later in the report where you see in every tariff group in every university type, there are advan um, the, there are examples of universities that um, are at risk in terms of liquidity, and that if we just say, "Oh, it's certain kinds of universities," or if 
um, a minister in DfE lazily thinks, oh, it's just the bad universities. However you cut the sector, it's not, it's everybody. So the sector really has to pull together on this. Now, DK was in Birmingham for Digifest this week and caught up with colleagues there. So I'm here in Birmingham at Digifest with Heidi Fraser-Krauss, the Chief Executive of JISC. Heidi, how does it feel to be all back together again? Absolutely marvellous. It's just been great, the energy in the room, people been able to speak to each other, share ideas, people who've never met each other. Yeah. You know, so you see somebody and you've only ever seen them on Zoom and all of a sudden you realise they're five foot seven or six (laughs) foot seven. (laughs) It's been really good. I think it's been like that for a lot of people. Indeed. I mean, what kind of conversations have been going on at um, Digifest? I mean, what are people talking about as they get back together? So challenges around how you make hybrid work. Yeah. You know, so that's a real challenge for everybody, whether that's office working or whether that's teaching and learning, how yeah. you get that to work. And um, what does work? Of that's course. the other interesting thing. So um, I said in my opening address, you know, we've had a two year experiment in some ways of using technology in ways that we haven't used it before. Some things work really well. Some things don't. And I think that is a conversation that's been going on as well. Yeah. And obviously, I mean, just in its um, role as a central provider of services, but also as, I think it's fair to say, one of the instigation instigators of the online learning capacity that it exists in the UK uh, system, just be the big part of that. So what's the big priorities for JISC uh, uh, in the next um, year or so? What kind of things are you up to? So the thing that I'm being asked for more and more is advice and guidance. What's best practice? How do we do this well? Um, cyber is another big course, thing. You yeah. will not be surprised to hear that everybody's really keen on uh, making sure that the things, yeah, we've relied on digital entirely, you know, mm. uh, making sure that universities are cyber secure, um, whatever, whatever term, I mean, I mean, I don't even know what words to use on that, but making <laughs> sure people are as, as secure as possible. Um, developing connectivity further. That's something, you know, there are lots of innovations out there. The 5G is coming down the track. Quantum, if you look a bit further down. So we've got all of these plans around looking at the Janet Network and connectivity for institutions. Because, again, that's the other thing that's been absolutely paramount, isn't it? That you're online. And now it's time for Yes, But Does It Correlate? And here to set this week's correlation question is Wonky's associate editor, David Kernan. Welcome to Yes But Does It Correlate, the podcast segment that is a sector-recognised standard. The sector has shifted in size and shape over the past seven years, with subject areas and thus academic staff numbers growing and shrinking according to the demands of applicants and what the market will bear. Or has it? I've plotted the number of academic staff in each cost centre, which is broadly the same as each subject area, in 2014-15 and 2020-21. A correlation here would mean that subject areas have all grown at the same rate, and an absence of a correlation would mean that some subjects have grown while others have shrunk. So, does it correlate? Nah, I, I, no, it doesn't. No, no, there's too much variability. Um, No, it's all over the place. I would say no. The answer here surprised me quite a lot. R squared is 0.98, a very, very strong correlation. 
This does hide some interesting movements though. For instance, the number of academics in health and community studies has fallen between 2014-15 and 2020-21. The graph on the podcast page offers a range of filters to give us some further insights. We learned, for example, that computer science has seen the largest growth in academics to under 25 years old over this period, and that there are more academic staff in business studies over 66 years old than in any other subject area. The data is from the HESA staff collection, and where the data doesn't exist, I've not plotted it. Now, Universities UK is out with a new admissions code. Laura, what jumped out at you? Uh, well, I think this is very overdue to be honest. So the UUK has launched a new fair admissions code of practice. It's a set of self-regulatory principles. And this is going to be developed in consultation with applicants, school leaders and sort of the admissions team. So the code is going to be referenced in the UK admissions principles and um, the reason I say it's long overdue because often these conditional offers can feel like a dodgy phone contract in that you're locked in um, and unable to even think about going elsewhere. And um, so I think it's good that there's an increasing interest in, in, in this area and Guild members will also become signatories on the practice. So, uh, Paul, I mean, you've written a lot about this issue in the past, haven't you? Um, I guess one of the big things that's shifted is the government dropping um, its commitment to PQA or P- PQO. Um, I mean, does this does this sort of do something in the middle? Uh, no, not really. I don't. I don't think. I mean, I, I think it's a, a, a not unhelpful uh, guide, um, and I think it's one that universities should find no difficulty um, in signing up to, and it's it's straightforward. And it, it, you know, sets out what we should do and the rules that by which we should all play. And I think that's absolutely fine. I mean, it does seem a slightly elaborate way to, um, to ensure that we won't, you know, we all agree that we're not going to do conditional, unconditional offers, um, uh, again. I mean, I have to say, I think that's something that's, you know, that's, that's gone now, uh, with the exception of one university. Um, and, um, you know, it would be easier just to focus on that and say, no, agree, we'll never do it. But anyway, we've got a load of, uh, extra stuff here, which is, is pretty straightforward. I am disappointed about the, the PQA issue. I mean, you know, I always resented it being, you know, the suggestion that somehow government was going to impose it on us and they were going to tell us how to do it is one of uh, um, the former uh, Secretary of State's great uh, initiatives uh, for which he has thankfully been richly rewarded um, with a knighthood. Um, uh, but uh, to be told what to do in admissions is always an irritant for, for universities. But nevertheless, I think I, from my point of view, it's still the right thing to do. However, it's dead in the water now. I still think universities have it within them to decide that they want to do it in, you know, five, six, ten years' time, wherever it might be, and it would be a rational alternative to where we are now. However, I'm in a minority of roughly two or three on that um, in the entire sector, um, and therefore I'm going to shut up about it now. Um, Thank you, Paul. From my perspective, uh, just looking through this iteration of the Code of Practice, it's not really changed substantially from other iterations. We're still dealing, aside from the uh, conditional, unconditional stuff, which we've talked about, we're still dealing with broadly the uh, same issues as we were dealing with in the old days when agencies like the 
supporting professional admissions. Our spa walked the earth and we did take admissions practice seriously as a thing in its own right. Um, as is probably clear to everybody, I'm pleased that we didn't go down the road of PQA and uh, PQO. But the stasis in admissions, I think it doesn't help um, the sector. There is a, a sense in which the system has become ossified and that when we face the real changes in uh, 2025 with modular admissions and modular applications as a part of the lifelong loan entitlement and associated measures, um, universities are going to have to move very quickly to consider and understand new ways of um, managing admissions. It does feel like, although there's been a, a number of iterations of this particular code before, this is probably the last iteration that is going to look like this. And even if we're sitting in here, you know, in four or five years time, rather than considering uh, PQA or PQO for what feels like the 28th time since the turn of the century, we will, we will in fact be looking at other issues and other measures. I guess a lot, lots, lot probably depends on, on what happens in this application cycle. So we've had obviously very un uneven the last couple of years because of the pandemic, or you could say the policy decisions that came out of the pandemic. Um, I guess, is there a risk that the issue starts rocketing back up the kind of wider news and, and political agenda? And, and I guess is the question about conditionals or not um, start to become political again? So um, the, 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 the thing about, um, I should just briefly pick up Paul on, his set, on a thing he said. He said that there was one in, um, um, university that was still doing uh, conditional unconditionals in a year that they were banned from doing so. The fact that the Office for Students hasn't come uh charging onto that particular campus in uh, their special compliance car um, is that um, that was actually a data submission error and there were actually no conditional uh, unconditional offers in 2021. I think that the, the um, I'll let you come in in a second Paul. Um, I think that the um, I've, you've actually made me completely forget what I was going to say. So you might as well come in now. Sorry, I, I, I was I, I didn't know that, uh, Dicky. I was just um, I, I was just expressing surprise at that news because I wasn't I wasn't aware of it. Um, I picked it up in news. I hadn't picked up that it was a data error. Um, so um, uh, I was su expressing surprise. Okay, thank you, Paul. Well, I think that we've all learned if it's not being covered in one key, it's not a thing. If it um, um, relates to data, and I think that's a, a a sensible definition to go to go forward. In terms of the political pressure on university admissions, the, arguably the pressure in the last couple of years wouldn't was not on admissions as a process in itself. It was on level three qualifications and level three attainment and understanding the way that reflects on the potential of somebody to go forward and succeed in higher education. Um, obviously, with the interest in the threshold, that's going to put even more pressure on level three. Um, I mean, uh, God forbid we have another round of COVID with everything else that's going on as well. But the, the, uh, uh, the, the severe pressure that a threshold that would mean that a person could or could not go to university would place on a teacher awarding a, um, 
a grade. This is a, um, a decision that will profoundly affect somebody's life course. That's going to put some uh, pressure on level three. Where I think in this country we're long overdue a proper look at uh, qualifications at level three and level two. We specialize far too early. We focus on high stakes exams to the detriment of all other forms of understanding and supporting learning. We're starting to see movement on this in Scotland. They're going back to the curriculum for excellence and that kind of thinking about a wider experience of compulsory education. I do hope eventually that we'll start thinking about that in England and maybe end up actually abolishing A-level, something which is long overdue. Completely agree with that. Um, can I just kind of come and follow, follow up that? Because I, I think that, you know, pending that longer term structural change um, in um, uh, compulsory education, I do think the um, the issue for institutions is about having um, an approach to uh, admissions and the whole process which is both as um, predictable in a very turbulent environment as it can be but also you know ensures that everyone plays by the rules and that students are not and applicants are uh, are treated fairly and equitably across the system and that's what part of what this is intended to to achieve because what we don't want to do is is to see universities going maverick coming up with their own rules breaking all the rules and um you know just you know ruining it for every for everyone this is where it's in everyone's interest that everyone plays by the rules the welfare of students and, and the mental stress that these offers can can create sometimes, especially when they have time sensitive, um, unconditional offers where you have to accept within a certain time. I think that's wrong. I think students are already under enough pressure, and we need to just ease off a little bit and making sure that every institution is singing to the same hong, uh, song sheet, singing to the same hymn sheet, song sheet is absolutely necessary. So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything that's going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our various subscriptions. So thanks very much to Paul, Laura, DK and everyone at Team Wonky that helps make the show happen. Until next week, stay wonky. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.